Well, good morning, everyone, again. Our God is holy. He is the only one worthy of all of our praise. So great singing with you, singing his name this morning. Uh, my name is Quentin. I am the pastor here at Harvest. If you're new, I'd love to meet you after. If, you knew, if you're new here, we also want you to know there's a, we're having a meal after, and you're welcome to join us uh, with that as well. It's going to be a potluck with all kinds of great food. So join us. Awesome, guys. We are going to be looking back at, at uh, Colossians again this week, and I invite you to open up to the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible in your hands, we have lots in the back. Our ushers would love to bring you one. Uh, we want you to have God's all-sufficient, holy, inspired word in your hands so that you can hear from him today. If you don't have a Bible at home, take that home. Take that as yours as well. So yes, good morning. Uh, this is the beginning of what is known as the Holy Week. This is Palm Sunday, the first day of the week marking Christ's journey to the cross. Um, as we just heard in the scripture reading, we remember this day as Jesus entering into Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, the long-awaited Messiah, the King, coming into his holy city. Behold, the King is coming, it says in Zechariah. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. And as he entered the city, his disciples and the crowds laid down their cloaks. They laid down palm branches before him, symbolizing his, his royal welcome. He is the king and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, our King Jesus. So to cry Hosanna... To cry Hosanna is a Jewish expression of praise and adoration, which, which rendered in the English means, I beg you to save. I beseech you, my king, to save me, to save us. It's a cry for salvation. And so we join together this morning, crying out Hosanna, Lord, save us. For you are the only king. You are the only way to the Father. And so this day we mark that day and we remember Palm Sunday. We remember Christ's teaching. We remember his leading. We remember his betrayal. We remember his suffering and his torture and ultimately his death on a bloody cross coming this Friday as we celebrate that again together. And then also the glorious resurrection on Sunday. So it's an awesome week to be focused on Christ. Um, if you want to go and check something out this week, go to Desiring God. They have a little booklet you can download. It'll, it'll inform you how to pray this Holy Week. Um, I forget the name, but just go there. It'll be on the front page of Desiring God. You can download that for free and, and use that to guide you in your prayers this week. But we are here for Christ. Hosanna in the highest today. So we're going to be looking at Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29 today. And... Uh, as we do here at Harvest, we walk through books of the Bible. We want God's full counsel. We want all of his word. And we're going to see even today that, that the text we have today even ties into Palm Sunday. It's the suffering of Christ as we also see the suffering of Paul. And so we see here as we jump back into Colossians, Paul has been heralding Christ Jesus as preeminent, as first He's been preaching the fullness of God that is pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. And last week we learned that the gospel doesn't need anything added to it. We learned that because Jesus is fully God, the curse over all creation can be reversed. It is reversed in Christ. 
and man upon repentance and faith is fully reconciled. And because Jesus is supreme, and he is the supreme reconciler of all things, he reconciles your life. He changes your plans. He redirects your paths. And we see that with the, with the witness of Paul. His path was completely redirected. And so the truth is this. You cannot truly meet the person of Christ and not be changed by him. You cannot truly meet him and not be transformed. You'll either reject him, but if you truly meet him in a saving way, you cannot not be changed. That's what happens. And so with that in mind, we get another amazing opportunity to witness the power of the gospel at work in a follower of Christ, in the Apostle Paul himself. And we get to see his suffering as well as a minister of the gospel. And so with that, we'll also remember our suffering Savior this, this Sunday coming forward. We'll, we'll also see how Paul goes before us as an example of suffering as well. You and I are called to be imitators of Paul as he imitates Christ. So let's follow in his footsteps, footsteps today and as we examine Paul's witness and his ministry. And by doing that, we're going to ask ourselves four questions. Four questions of self-examination today. Four questions that should challenge us for greater faithfulness as we seek to live the authentic Christian life in the power of the Spirit. So starting in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we approach your word this morning. We approach it weak and feeble. We approach it with human minds trying to understand the things of God. And so we ask you to intercede for us. We ask your Holy Spirit to illuminate the text before us. Show us the meaning. Teach us by your word. We thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that it opens us up and it shows us our sin, but it also puts us back together again by the gospel. So would you do that this morning? Would you teach us yet again? Teach us about who you are and our need of you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so these questions we're going to be asking ourselves are really good questions for examining where we are in our faith, looking at this example of Paul before us, and how we're doing in our preeminent purpose, our purpose as Christians. So the first question is this. First question is this. Am I joyfully suffering for the sake of the church? Am I joyfully suffering for the sake of the church? Verse 24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me 
for you, for the church. So am I joyfully suffering for the sake of the church? Does anybody think that's kind of a hard question to answer this morning? Are you suffering for the sake of the church? I'm trying to think. Am I suffering for the sake of the church? Do you think that's a relevant question for us today? Or is that for a different time in a different place? I think it's very relevant. How many people here this morning would dare to say that they have experienced suffering for the sake of the church? Let's have a look at what the Lord wants to teach us here. First, Paul says right out of the gate, he says, I rejoice. I rejoice in my suffering. This goes against all of our natural desires, all of our natural inclinations. Rejoicing in my suffering. Why would somebody say that they rejoice in their suffering? Is that how we embrace suffering? Paul would later say that, or Peter would say, he counts it all joy when we have suffering. Would you say that, that you are the same, that you would count it all joy to suffer? Uh, most people in our world don't embrace suffering. I know I don't embrace suffering. You want to see somebody uh, be a really big baby when they're sick? That would be me, right? If I'm sick, I am just, I'm just completely a waste. Um, so are we a society that embraces suffering? No, we're not. But how about us as Christians? We're the ones who are supposed to stand out and be different. How do we normally react to the hard things in our lives? So whether that be sickness, whether that be death, whether that be relational strife, just just hard things in, in our life, let alone suffering for the church, how do we respond to those things? We get anger, we get angry, we get bitter, we get upset. We, we grumble. Anybody guilty of grumbling in this room? We wish the whole thing was over sometimes. Um, so yeah, we don't normally embrace our suffering. But Paul says he rejoices in his suffering. Why would he do that? He actually says his suffering brings him happiness. It makes him glad. He welcomes the suffering. Why would he want to welcome it? Is this just a crazy man? So why is Paul so different than me and and you that he embraces this hard stuff and he welcomes the sacrifice? He's rejoicing in his suffering for your sake, for the sake of the church, for our sake. So meaning the Colossian church at that time, the universal church of all ages, and for us right now as, as the church. He rejoices in suffering for the sake of the church. He says, for your sake, for the sake of the body that is the church. Paul loves the church. Paul loves Christ's bride. He sacrifices himself. He sacrifices his life for the church. Because Christ first loved the church, therefore Paul loves the church and sacrifices himself for, his, for, the, for Christ's bride. So Paul, as a faithful follower of Christ, lives life in suffering and sacrifice for the, for the church. And doing it, he experiences great joy. Joy in the affliction, joy in the oppression, joy in the tribulation. 
And then he says, suffering for Christ's churches, filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, we have to be careful how we understand this, this lacking in Christ's affliction language. It may come across that Jesus' suffering was somehow insufficient. That's not what it means here at all. We have to remember that, that Paul has been arguing against false teaching uh, throughout this whole letter. Um, people were adding things to the gospel, teaching of a fuller knowledge, a fuller experience. He already argued that the qualifications of, of heaven are the qualifications of Christ alone. So he's not saying that the afflictions are filling up something that is insufficient. We know that Christ's salvation is sufficient, so it has to mean something else. He's not teaching that affliction adds anything to the gospel. This lacking refers to picking up where Christ left off. Picking up where Christ left off. So this week, as we remember how, how Jesus was scorned, how he was beaten, and, and how he was ultimately killed, and that now he is re- resurrected and ascended to heaven, his opposers cannot afflict him anymore, and so they transfer the, that affliction onto the followers of Christ after him. That's what it means to be filling up what is lacking. Jesus' afflictions are being filled up and carried on in his body, and his body is the church, passed on to his apostles, passed on to his disciples, and on to us Christians for all generations. So the truth is, is that we will be persecuted. Christ followers will be persecuted. We're promised that Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly or live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus himself said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And so in God's economy, when you're called out of the darkness, when you are saved from your sin, when you are reconciled and you are at peace with God that we were talking about last week, you are not at peace with the world. The world will hate you because they hate Christ. And they will take action against his followers. And so this is true in Paul's life. We see this. Remember, Paul is writing this prison from where? Where is he writing this letter? From prison, right? Yeah, he's writing it from prison. He said at the very end of this book, Remember my chains. He's in prison. He's writing it. Why is he in prison? It's because he's a preacher of the gospel. Throughout his life and ministry, as God fully directed his path, he has been oppressed. Just witness some of this in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 27. He was defending his witness that he had greater labors, far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's Paul's life. That's what it looks like. That's what his life 
experience was all about. He was suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church. And today he says he rejoices in that suffering. Why? He rejoices for the sake of the church, of which he became a minister, it says, according to the stewardship, which is the arrangement, the appointment from God that was given to him for you. He was an apostle. And Paul joyfully suffered for the sake of the church. And so then we need to ask ourselves the question, am I joyfully suffering for the sake of the church? So let me ask you again, do you think that the suffering Paul was experiencing was for a time and was for a place? Is this something that was merely reserved for the apostles only? Well, if you take a little tour throughout church history, you'll see that that's not the case. It continues beyond the apostles. In fact, very soon after the apostles, there was a Christian named Polycarp. He was a very ordinary man, not very well educated, but he was a man that was bent on sharing the gospel. He was a disciple of the apostle John, and he was responsible for the conversion of many Roman citizens away from Gnosticism to true faith in Christ. And because of his faithfulness to proclaim the gospel, when he was 86 years old, he was burned at the stake. When the soldiers grabbed him to nail him to the stake, he told them to stop. And he just went and stood next to the stake stake willingly. And tradition tells us that they lit the stake, lit the fire, And as his body was being consumed, he was singing and praying. And it was said that his final words were, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. And we see this throughout all of Christian history. Just take a look at the Protestant Reformation. All around that time, fighting for the word of God to be in our hands, fighting for the truth of the gospel and dying for it. And so we ask ourselves today, if we are promised suffering, what does suffering look like today? Now, when I think about the city of Calgary and the history of the church here, I doubt there's been anybody killed for their faith here in Calgary, Alberta. I'm sure there's been some persecution. So in a sense, it has, it has changed so much here. It, we, we live in a free country. We have uh, laws that protect our beliefs, and that's great. But we need to ask ourselves, if I'm promised persecution and suffering for Christ, and I'm not experiencing anything right now, am I really living my life in such a way that I am different, that I'm making a difference, that I am bold enough to share that gospel and actually receive some of the persecution? Do the people around me every day even know that I am different? Do they even know that I'm a Christ follower? Or am I keeping myself to myself out of fear? When you think about it, what's the worst thing that could happen to us if we went and stood out in the public square, in a park, in the mall, and stood up and just started sharing the gospel with the world. What's the worst thing do you guys think could happen to us? Ideas? What's the worst thing? You might get heckled. You might get kicked out of the mall, right? 
people might make a, a bad face at you, right? Um, yeah, you can lose friends. You can be arrested for disturbing the peace. But friends, we're not going to get killed. But even if it was to that place, by example of Paul, we need to stand in that place and receive it for God's glory. This is extremely unlikely in our country to be killed for our faith. So we see that there is a bit of a, a disparity here. Why would the pillars of our faith over the centuries be so joyfully willing to suffer for Christ in the face of death, but we don't willingly suffer today? We don't willingly walk across the street afraid to offend our neighbor, afraid to look like some kind of a wacko, right? Friends, we need to repent of this. We need to be bold. We need to be pursuing the lost every day. And if we never experience suffering for our faith and for the church, we might have to check our witness. You know, when we see in the Bible, we see the, the word witness. It comes from the Greek word martyr. To be a martyr is to die for your faith. So friends, Paul is teaching us that suffering for the church is, is an extremely joyful pursuit. A pursuit for the lost. Because you're truly unashamed to follow the one who went before you. The one who suffered for you. And so am I joyfully suffering for the sake of the church. I confess myself, I'm trying to think, am I receiving any kind of suffering, any kind of persecution for the sake of the church right now? Now, as I think about the last couple of years of our life, um, as we've pursued to plant this church and pursued ministry, we've had very, very small amount of persecution, if I can point out any, just a small amount of suffering in the sense that... Um, Somebody speaking bad about you, um, somebody um, having a false accusation against you. We've had some of that in the last couple of years. People lashing out, but it hasn't been any kind of a physical suffering. And so let's be asking ourselves that question. Am I joyfully suffering for the sake of the church? We need to embrace suffering, embrace the joy that comes with it knowing that our experience is just a small, small experience as we join Christ, our Savior, in his suffering. We're all ministers of the gospel. This isn't just for apostles. This is also for us. So take a bit of an examination of your life and, and, and start looking. Where's those places where, where I'm pulling back, where I'm not actually stepping forward? And next week, be bold to do that and then embrace the joy that comes with suffering. So we have a second question in the next two verses. Second question of self-examination is this. Am I urgently proclaiming the hope of glory? This all is tied together. Am I urgently proclaiming the hope of glory? If you follow the life of Paul, he didn't suffer because he was a jerk. He suffered because he opened his mouth with the hope of glory on his lips. Sometimes we can be jerky out there in the public. We don't want to offend because of our personality. We want to offend because the gospel is offensive. He says in verse 25 to 27, He became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So am I urgently proclaiming this hope of glory? As Paul confesses to joyfully suffering for the church, he reveals that the suffering is not his goal. The goal is not to suffer for the sake of suffering. The goal is to make the word of God fully known. And so as much as the false teachers in Colossians, if you can remember, they're teaching something about a fuller experience, a fuller knowledge, Paul's goal as a Christian is to make the fullness of Christ as revealed in God's word fully known in the church and in the world. And even more revealing, he says that this message of the word of God is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, that is the church, and it's to the church, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. As we think about this Palm Sunday, we think about Christ entering Jerusalem this long-awaited Messiah, this long-awaited King, the Savior of the world. We need to be astonished again, astonished at God's plans from the very beginning. Just like we studied last week, we talked about God's plan to send His Son, the fullness of God in Jesus, where the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. Long before He created the universe, long before sin stained all of creation, This mystery that Paul is talking about is not some kind of a secret ritual. It's not some mysterious insight or experience. It's not that God has been hiding something. Instead, this mystery is the reality of God's unfolding plan of redemption. His unfolding plan of redemption from day one, that God's very presence will be with and in his people. That's the mystery. From the beginning, God had to determine to dwell with his people, and he will dwell again with his people in heaven. But now the beautiful and often forgotten mystery is that Jesus Christ powerfully dwells within his church. And Paul is saying that it's been hidden for generations, meaning that this plan was veiled. It was not yet fully revealed. It wasn't visible yet. It wasn't clear yet. You know, when you're at the, the eye doctor and, and you're looking at the, the chart on the wall and you're trying to read and, and, the, and the eye doctor's flipping all these little lenses by, by your eyes and it's really, really fuzzy. You can't make out anything. And then you see him starting to pull the lenses back, putting some more in place, and it starts to become gradually, gradually, gradually more clear. That's God's plan of salvation, his plan of redemption as revealed from the beginning. At the beginning, it was veiled. We could see it. It wasn't fully clear. And it's the same with Jesus Christ. He is the one who is totally clear, razor-sharp focus. It is the mystery from all generations. When he came, we could see God clearly, perfectly. Remember, he is the Emmanuel. He is God with us, man and God dwelling together. God in you, the hope of glory. God's plan was to dwell with his people again. Throughout biblical history, you see him dwelling with special leaders and prophets throughout the Old Testament. 
In Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, I am with you. In Genesis 26, he says to Isaac, I am with you. Genesis 28, he says to Jacob, I am with you. Genesis 39, he says to Joseph, I am with you. Exodus 3.12, he says, I will be with you, Moses. When Joshua succeeded Moses, God said to him, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. When Gideon was facing the impossible Midianite army, God said, I will be with you. God said to David, I will be with you. And he said to Solomon, as I was with your father, I will be with you. And then we go to the prophets, Isaiah, do not fear for I am with you. Jeremiah, do not fear for I am with you. God's plan is to be with his people, to dwell with his people. Now for the ordinary believer of that time, God did not specially dwell them as he does today. He would dwell with them through the prophets and through the tabernacle and through the temple. His very personal presence was with his people in the tabernacle, in the, in the temple, behind the holy of holies, his whole personal presence. Self would come down. And then God came to us in Jesus Christ. John says that he came to tabernacle with us. God's very presence with man. And that's been the, that's been the mystery because when Christ left, he sent his spirit. And now his Holy Spirit dwells within the church. So if you're a Christ follower this morning, you have God's very presence dwelling within you. That should just make us go crazy, just thinking about that. The God who created the universe is dwelling within us, dwelling within his church. What an amazing mystery. If you're a Christ follower, you have God's very presence dwelling within you. When you repent of your sin and you trust in Christ for salvation, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. He comes and he resides within you forever. And the mystery is also even more profound in this context because it's also including the Gentiles, which is including all of us here, right? Unless you're Jewish, you're not a Gentile. We are all Gentiles here. The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you personally and Christ in us collectively. This is the hope of the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory, means that God himself is directly and personally present in your life. Remember, we were talking about justification last week, that that Christ covers us with his righteousness, but we are also filled with the Holy Spirit. We're covered and we're filled. Doesn't that just scream how much we need the Lord? That he made the way. He covers us and he fills us. There is no other way. And that is our only hope. Christ in us, the hope of glory. This is our preeminent message This is what we share with the world and with the church. This is our first song, rejoicing with joy, reminding ourselves that we could not do it. And the message of the cross is that he did it all. He did it all through Christ. And he continues to work in us by his indwelling presence to transform us into Christ's image. I love what Ezekiel 36 says. 26 to 27 says about this. 
prophesied about this whole mystery happening. The prophet says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's spirit causes us to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. This is the hope of glory promised and realized in the person of Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. You cannot live this Christian life without God's presence in you. You cannot. It's impossible. And this is our message. This is what we proclaim. And so as you think about this incredible reality in your life, think about your neighbor who does not have God's indwelling presence. He cannot live for God without God's presence. And you have that message. You have the message of the hope of glory, this mystery. Think about your neighbors. Think about your co-workers. Think about your family, any unbelievers. They don't have the hope of glory. They're not filled with God. They are without hope. We live in a hopeless generation. People aren't believing in objective truth anymore. More and more, the world is just believing that this world is all there is. But we have the message of so much more. They don't have the hope of your Savior. They don't have the hope of a God that loves them so much that he wants to dwell within them and cause them to walk in his statutes. Jesus in you, the hope of glory, this is our message. God loves to reconcile sinners. He loves to reconcile sinners. He loves to fill them with his spirit for his glory. That's what he's all about. He is a savior. He is a redeemer. 1 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's heart is to redeem the lost. But he doesn't save sinners apart from his message. He doesn't save sinners apart from you. He uses you. He privileges us to be the vehicles of righteousness to share this message. And so you and I are called to join Paul, to join Paul in suffering for the sake of the church and sharing this message. Jesus is the only hope for the world. He is the hope of glory. And so ask yourselves this morning, am I urgently proclaiming the hope of glory? And if you're not, what are you waiting for? As a church, we've got to keep reminding ourselves this over and over and over again. So how are you doing with making the word of God fully known? Who have you been sharing the hope of glory with for the past couple of weeks? That's a convicting question to ask yourself. This past week in our small groups, we asked ourselves that question. Give us some names. Who are you pursuing? Who are you praying to pursue? Who are you going to pursue this week, next week? Like, we really need to take this seriously. This is our calling. This is why we're planting a church here in New Brighton. It's to reach more people with the gospel. For God's glory, 
The, ex- the reason that we exist is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Sharing the good news with the lost. Seeing them come to life. Making disciples of the nations around us. So who are you pursuing right now? Start thinking about that in your head. You need a couple names on that list. you got to have a couple names at least to put down on a list and start pursuing them. As your elders and, and I make plans for our church, we see many opportunities in this city, uh, many plans to engage the community, to rub shoulders with the lost. We have plans to promote our church, uh, to be intentional in reaching out. And there's, there's plenty of opportunities, and we're going to embrace some of those. But do you know what our greatest opportunity is as a church? Our greatest opportunity as a church is that each one of us, ordinary Christians, would personally, intentionally pursue the lost in our lives. That is our hope. That's our plan. That's God's plan. That's our greatest strength. That's the normative way that people come to faith. It's through you. Just average Joes like us. Seeking, praying that the Lord will go before us and bring ripe apples into our paths so that we can share the good news with them. And so let's ask ourselves that question. Am I urgently proclaiming this hope of glory? I've mentioned this before, but there's 1.4 million people in the greater Calgary area, and only 5.2% claim to believe in Jesus Christ. That leaves 1.32 million people in our city who don't have the hope of glory. And God's normative plan is that you will go to them personally, individually, sharing the good news. So am I urgently proclaiming this hope of glory? So am I joyfully suffering for the church? Am I urgently proclaiming the hope of glory? And the next question of self-examination is this. Am I faithfully committing to grow in maturity? Paul says in verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice the word everyone. So it's one thing to share the gospel with an unbeliever, for someone to, to come to faith, to profess the name of Christ, but it's another thing to make a disciple. And I've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating as well. A true disciple makes disciples who become true disciples who make disciples. One of our sayings that harvest is lost, people saved, Saved people matured, matured people multiplied all to the glory of God. That's his plan, making disciples. That's our great commission. And this comes through proclaiming Christ. We proclaim him to everyone, and this everyone is the world, and it is the church. Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom for the purpose of presenting everyone mature in Christ. And so we see to proclaim Christ is to preach, it's to herald the whole gospel, and that involves two things, warning and teaching. Proclaiming involves warning and teaching. Warning has a sense, like a negative sense to it, while teaching has a positive action to it. Warning comes from this Greek word, nutheo. Anybody uh, study biblical counseling or biblical soul care? Uh, It's often called nuthetic counseling, coming from the same word, and which means to admonish, to, to warn someone. To tell them that the way that they're going is the wrong way. Think of it as somebody walking towards a cliff with a blindfold on. Are you going to stand there and watch them walk over that cliff? Or are you going to run to them and warn them? Tell them you're going the wrong way. You're going to fall off that cliff. That's warning. 
warning people of the negative consequences of sin. And then we see this word teaching. Teaching is to impart knowledge, to impart skill. Teaching what God's word says about a given subject, exposing the meaning of God's word to our minds, to renew our minds, which transforms our heart, which then changes our actions. So we never want to be satisfied with just, just making converts, just sharing the gospel. We are about making disciples. And we do this through teaching and warning. So teaching and warning is, is part of the, the preaching aspect of the church. Um, pastors and elders are, are qualified through godly character. And there's a list inside of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus about, about teaching. Teaching is, is really the only skill identified in that list. The rest is all character, but teaching is identified as, as the skill that a pastor, that an elder needs to have. So that's what we're doing here this morning. We see it prescribed in Scripture. We stand and we preach, we proclaim, we herald the Word of God, warning and teaching, admonishing one another. And we also can do this together. That's not just from the pulpit. We teach and admonish one another. In our church services, we place the sermon at the center. We build everything towards that. It is, it is the pillar at the middle. It's our fuel for the week. It's the fuel for our furnaces. The heralding of the putting off of the old man and the putting on of Christ with the ultimate aim of presenting one another mature. The purpose is maturity, completeness in Christ. So we warn each other. We teach each other. In fact, Colossians 3.16, we're going to learn in a few months or a month from now, Paul says that we are to teach and admonish one another. So the ministry of the church is not just from the pulpit. We are called to be in each other's lives, loving one another with God's word, proclaiming Jesus to one another, warning one another, teaching one another. This is God's plan for maturing his church. This is his plan to purify his bride, our sanctification, our growing in him, which brings him good pleasure. Back in Colossians 1.10, we've already seen this, that, that we are to be filled with the knowledge of God's will so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. The maturity of Christ's bride pleases him. And so, friends, our maturity pleases our Lord, and he has given us each other towards that effort to grow with each other. So the natural question for us is, Am I faithfully committing to grow in maturity, to receive warning, to receive teaching, to apply it, to warn each other, to teach one another in wisdom? This is mutual ministry, ministering to one another. So the church is, is the place of teaching the truth. And if you're not surrounded by others who will warn and teach you, you're living dangerously. If you're on your own trying to live the Christian life, you are living in a dangerous place. You need each other. We need to commit to sit under the proclamation of Christ, proclaiming Christ to one another, reminding one another of the gospel. If you think of a sheep in a, in a flock, he doesn't last long outside of the flock. Wolves are always searching for the sheep on the outward side, the weak ones, the ones who are isolating themselves, the ones who are not yielding to the safety and the protection and the warning of the shepherd's voice. It's really hard to grow on your own. It's not the way that God designed it. You need to receive ongoing, faithful warning and teaching from one another. And isolation is dangerous. 
Proverbs 16, 11, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. We need each other. We need to be committing to growing in maturity all the more as the days go on. So are you faithfully committing to growing in maturity? So let's run this race together, teaching each other, warning each other. And then our final question to ask ourselves is, am I fervently striving in the strength of the gospel? Am I fervently striving in the strength of the gospel? Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says his toil, his struggling, his whole life is for the maturing of the faithful. His joy is the same as God's joy. As much as we would love to see thousands professing Christ, it's the watching of one another maturing, the bearing of fruit that brings God joy. And Paul says it brings him joy as well. God delights in his bride. He delights in his church. He delights to see her transformed more fully into his image. And Paul can say, my work is worth it. His toil and his struggling is worth it. As much as God delights in the maturing of his bride, and Paul does as well, he says he cannot do it apart from the strength of God. He cannot do it apart from the strength of the gospel. You try to do it in your own strength, you're going to burn out. You're going to get tired. You're not going to have the power of the Holy Spirit with you actually doing the work. You need to do it in his strength. The only hope that Paul has of any success in his ministry is the strength of God struggling with him. Struggling with all of God's energy. That God powerfully works within him. As a child, I remember driving in in my pickup truck with my grandpa, or his pickup truck, my grandpa always liked to have a standard shift. He didn't like the automatics. They were too, they were too new. And uh, I remember him putting my little hand on the shifter, and then he'd put his hand over top of the shifter, and he'd be shifting, right? I had absolutely no strength to shift that shifter, to change those gears. He had to do it. It's the same thing that's going on here. Paul needs God's strength. We need God's strength. We need the strength of the Holy Spirit powerfully working within us. We should never try to do anything of any spiritual value apart from seeking the Lord and his strength alone. I'll just tell you, I'm, I'm, prone to, I'm prone to working hard. I'm prone to working in my own strength. I'm prone, my, my mind wants to get up in the morning and wants to run to get things done rather than committing to the Lord, submitting to him and his plan, seeking him first. And I know that's a lot of our struggle as well. Sometimes I fall back into trusting my own strength. And it's not until I repent of my foolishness and my pride that God begins to work again. When I start to see him powerfully working, seeing him do things that only he can do. And it's the same for you. Whatever you're trying to do, you're striving, you're laboring for the gospel, you're laboring to grow in Christ. You need Christ's strength. This is not an autonomous effort. You need to trust in him and lean into him. 
So we need to turn from our own strength, turn to the Lord. He will strengthen you, and he will do the work that only he can do. Am I joyfully suffering for the sake of the church? Am I urgently proclaiming the hope of glory? Am I faithfully committing to grow in maturity? Am I fervently striving in the strength of the gospel? By the example of Paul and the warning and the teaching of God's word, as we celebrate Christ this week, we know that it's because of his resurrection that we have strength. It's because he ascended to the Father and gave us his spirit that we have strength. We are empowered to live this life, to follow him. This is a grace-induced, spirit-empowered, gospel-motivated, Christ-exalting life. That's what we do. We're not trying to do this in our own effort. It's absolute foolishness. We will never live the Christ life on our own. We need him. We need him today. We need him even more tomorrow. And so we seek him and seek him fully. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word that, uh, that convicts us, your word that also encourages us, teaches us the truth. We thank you for teaching us and warning us. Lord, we need it. Lord, we welcome it. Lord, as we think about suffering for the sake of the church, we're perplexed. We examine our lives and see that uh, if there's any suffering, it's very minimal. And so we ask you, Lord, would you propel us, would you compel us to live for you? Would you give us the boldness we need? Would each one of us look at, look at our calling, look at your desire for us to be out connecting with the world sharing the good news, being intentional, even just on our own every day. That we're looking behind us and seeing if there's anybody following. Looking at the record of our life and seeing, is there anybody that I've shared this good news with? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Lord, we rejoice in that, that you dwell within us. May that be the message that just resounds from our lips this week into the world as we celebrate your footsteps towards the cross as we celebrate this friday and this sunday may you use us for your glory transform us into your image as we grow into a mature bride and we pray that you would all do this by the strength of your spirit in christ's name i pray